This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and thanks again for tuning back into the Future of Cybercrime podcast. If you're new here, to give you some background, Kella's Future of Cybercrime podcast is dedicated to helping security teams, hopefully one that you're a part of, succeed with cybercrime threat intelligence. In each episode, I will interview a security practitioner to distill the best practices, their lessons learned, and actionable takeaways to help listeners succeed in defending their organizations from cybercrime. Today, I'm speaking with Matthew Schwartz, Executive Editor at Data Breach Today and ISMG Group. Matthew Schwartz is an award-winning journalist with two decades of experience in magazines, newspapers, and electronic media. He has covered the information security and privacy sector throughout his career, though before joining Information Security and Media Group in 2014, where he now serves as, again, the Executive Editor, and Data Breach Today. He was covering European news as well. He was the information security beat reporter for Information Week and a frequent contributor to Dark Reading, among other publications. Matthew, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on. Yes. So let's get started with why cybersecurity? How about how did you get into the cybersecurity space? What motivates you to keep your focus here? I think when you're looking at all the different things you can cover in information technology, and that's how I got my start was as an IT, actually as a copy editor, so fixing other people's copy. And then I thought writing stories would be a lot more interesting. And so I managed to work my way up a little bit, was on a couple of publications, client server computing, really gripping name, I know, and then a software magazine, also long gone probably by this point. But as I was covering different topics, I don't know if it was this age-old fascination with hacking and computer crime and stuff like that. But the whole discipline seems really sexy, right? And then when you start to dig in, there's so many different angles to it. And I was involved in websites from an early age. I was in a pioneering online startup when I was at college, at the just, just about to graduate oh, college. Right. And so I'd been in the online space already. I thought this was a skill that would probably become, especially the online community part, probably really commoditized very quickly. But it turns out that some of us are a little more astute at some things than others, right? And so I've always had this passion and interest in the online space. And obviously that was, I don't want to say a multi-car pileup waiting to happen, but (laughs) things haven't gotten better in the internet security space, have they? And so not to be a chronicler of doom, but there's always something really fascinating happening. So I remember, for example, writing a story when I was at Computer World on DVD encryption and how that had been broken. And then if you just go forward a couple of years from there, we were having more discussions about privacy, data breaches. We had California with its pioneering state law covering notifications for data breaches. That's something else I thought might be a flash in the pan. I was covering compliance, IT compliance type stuff, which sounds a little dry, but I just thought it was so fascinating because how do you protect people's personal information? What is your responsibility? So many businesses, it was like, hey, we were handling it. We were selling your data. 
we totally lost control of it. That's our bad, but now it's on you. You know, you're the one who's going to experience fraud and stuff like that. And this power imbalance. I mean, fascinating stuff. And I was hoping that data breaches might be solved and I wouldn't be covering it after a while. As you noted, one of the ISMG properties is data breach today. Not meant literally when it started. Now it's so much more than daily, obviously. But all of these topics have, I think, always been fascinating and taken on increased importance. And I mean, we can look at how much more important cybersecurity has become. The beginning of President Trump's presidency, there was a question about what focus cybersecurity might have. That almost seems like the glory days, if you will, in terms of, oh, are people ever going to really understand cybersecurity? Mm. Russian hacking, etc. It's just that the dialogue has continued to change, intensify. Many more people now are thinking about these things, worrying about these things. Is TikTok safe to use, for example? So that is a very long-winded answer about how I got into it. But it went from being a little bit niche to obviously here we are now. It's a lot less niche than it used to be. A fair answer in that you have a similar background to a lot of people that have been on this podcast with your fascination in technology and then securing that technology, feeling this natural inclination to find out the rules and people's responsibilities as per the rules. This judicial aspect of cybersecurity is one that people find intriguing and then apply technical expertise to. And it's, I don't believe it's dry. Covering regulation is, is not whatsoever dry, though I can understand how many others and organizations would to be fit an auditor's idea of good or bad security. Now, in covering the regulatory space as it was evolving into what you're covering now, I'd like to understand how your writing has changed. What topics are you covering now that you were not covering when you started your career? Well, as I was saying, the dialogue about all of these things has continued to evolve. So in some respects, I'm covering things probably very similarly to, let's look at 20 years ago when California had its data breach notification rule. So at one level, there's the news, just this straight up reporting aspect of it all. And like you say, regulations, fascinating. I mean, especially maybe if you're not on the having to comply with them side of it. But if you're looking at what's trying to be solved and the instruments, the judicial, the regulatory instruments being brought to bear on that, that's really interesting. And GDPR, for example, absolutely fascinating. And living in Scotland, as I do, I'm very thankful that Britain complies with GDPR and I've got some protections that people in the US don't enjoy. So I think as I've gotten older and a bit I don't know if wiser is the word or more jaded, but I have more thoughts definitely to share. So I brought definitely more of a point of view oftentimes to the sorts of things I'm looking at because I've seen a lot of it before. I've seen this power imbalance where organizations are losing consumers' data and what happens? Oftentimes very little as a result. Maybe the stock price takes an initial hit, but it is almost unheard of for an organization to go out of business or for there to be a long-term impact after it suffered a data breach, for example. So I think with that in mind, I am trying to not dispel myths, but take a little dose of reality or bring a dose of reality to the reporting that I didn't have to hand before because I hadn't lived through it. But with so many things these days, you could keep reporting the same basic news. For example, 
ransomware group has hit somebody or they claim to have hit somebody. They claim to have stolen data. The organization hasn't responded to the journalists about if it will pay a ransom, if it did pay a ransom, that sort of thing. So you've got that level, that base level, pretty skin deep level of news. And I think it's much more interesting to bring depth and to speak to experts, to get their opinions and perspective and point of view on things as well. And just to try to explain, how did we get here? And you don't want to do that with every story. But I think having that in the back of your head is, as a reader as well, is always a really great point of view to keep manifesting, if you will. How did we get here? What came before? What's happening now? Is it so different? Why is it different? So I try to prioritize that kind of thinking when I'm reporting on things now. So you're digging for the source of truth, like a true... What is truth, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay, but... So, hey, all right, let's talk about that. What is truth to a cyber attacker? What is truth to a threat intelligence researcher? What is truth to the reporting of an organization that has been compromised? Can you tell me a little bit about some experiences you've had where the truth does not align? We know that happens. Oh, that always happens. Yes. Or your uh, supposition about what might be true. Yeah, just to hedge things a little bit. Your uh, What's the consultancy phrase? Uh, with 60% probability, we think there's a high likelihood of this happening or something. <laughs> you can change it many ways. I've seen many yeah, sins that's as enough. a reporter when you're trying to get a straight answer out of uh, prognosticators. But what is the truth? So one thing I like about threat intelligence, since we're talking about threat intelligence and the people who wield it, is... I'll just be clear, this is probably obvious. I've never been in the intelligence community, but you often hear stories about multiple sources of intelligence. And of course, we see this as well now. It is the rare security team that is only consuming one security feed, threat intelligence feed, vulnerability management feed. People tend to be looking at different sources of information. Some of those are open source. For example, here in Britain, we've got the National Cybersecurity Center. Uh, We've got five eyes saying on a regular basis, if you haven't patched these 12 vulnerabilities, patch them now, please. We've seen them being used by nation-state attackers, cybercrime groups. Start here. So we've got all of these different sources of information, depending on what you're looking at. But one of the ones I always love to compare and contrast is what the crooks are saying versus what the evidence suggests. And so we see this so frequently with ransomware groups for example, who really like to control the message. They really want to be the ones spinning the narrative. So I think whenever possible, it's great to puncture that narrative or hold it up to the light and see if they are lying. I know, shocker, or stretching the truth or whatever they might be doing so that they're not the ones controlling the narrative. In a few examples, maybe even one, why would a cyber threat actor stretch the truth? What's the motive? And then is there another play after stretching that truth? So what's the motive? And then what's the strategic outlook of doing this? So really in the ransomware space, unlike any other that we've seen before, there's a massive degree of self-promotion and almost soap opera level adolescent put-downs and hijinks when it comes to these groups. I suspect a lot of the practitioners are slightly older than that, maybe in their 20s. I don't know. I haven't done an ethnographic study. I don't think anybody has. No one's embedded with these guys. But there's all of this sort of noise around the attacks and the groups attempting to big themselves up. And a lot of that is rampant self-promotion and marketing because I think they're trying to make themselves look big and fierce. 
so that if you get hit by a ransomware group, their ideal scenario is that you will pay quickly, you'll pay what they're asking, and you'll pay quietly to the extent that you don't even tell law enforcement or anybody else. Because the more victims that a group can rack up without the authorities knowing, the less the authorities are able to track the TTPs being used by the group and to help others who might fall victim better prepare themselves. That's, I think, one of the big angles here is by looking bigger than life, by looking like a cliche hacking group, we know all, we hack all sort of thing. They're trying to make themselves look even bigger and badder than they might actually be. And you see this as well in the self-promotion and the statements, the victims. So sometimes they'll claim victims that aren't actually victims. They're just trying to big themselves up or they'll talk smack left, right, and center. I just think, yeah, again, it's just trying to make them look bigger and better than they really are to try to, I think there's a psychological component to this. Psychological levers is one of the ways I've heard it referred to, where it's the same with con artists. They're trying to get you to react more quickly than you think so that you will react in a manner that is to their benefit. Okay, we're going to pay them just in case we can't decrypt our files. Well, actually, why don't you pause, see if you can restore from backups, and then you don't need to fund cybercrime. But time and again, we see organizations doing this just-in-case step. We'll give them millions of dollars just in case our business is going to go down otherwise. So there's this competing elements and this psychological pressure being brought to bear by the attackers. And that psychology, that is the short answer to your question about why would they lie? Why would they big themselves up? Why would they stretch the truth? This is a great answer. Perception and reaction. Owning perception, owning reaction is really owning someone's conscious ability to critically think through something. And you're saying it so well. Let's talk about the relationship now between journalists and cyber threat intelligence researchers. To get to that source of truth, you said very briefly you are interviewing people. How often are you speaking to cyber threat intelligence researchers of different organizations? And what is that relationship like? So I'll widen the lens a little bit there and just look at security experts because, I mean, Mm -hmm. there are people who provide cyber threat intelligence. And then I also have a number of people I've met over the years, contacts, who maybe if they're not providing it, they are keeping a very close eye on it themselves. And so that is another source of excellent information because I'm looking for people who can tell me things I don't know. And I mean, what don't I know? I know what I don't know. And I'll often go looking for it as a journalist, Mm -hmm. sometimes asking blue sky questions. For example, there was a report that came out recently looking at ransomware's impact on a specific sector. I won't name the sector, but it's getting hit by ransomware. But then everyone's getting hit by ransomware. So I pinged some people, threat intelligence researchers, and also some security experts who have some knowledge of ransomware, because we don't know exactly how ransomware operates. And, And we can talk about that in a moment. But I wanted some feedback in terms of target selection. How do ransomware groups select their targets? Was this sector getting hit because they were going after it? Or was this sector getting hit in a happenstance manner or opportunistically targets of opportunity? Because why? Maybe the sector in general doesn't have great security. That's one of the things often accorded to healthcare is they don't tend to be great at stuff. They get hit a lot as a result. But that, maybe that's true of multiple sectors. Maybe people just hated this sector for some reason. I don't know. Maybe, who knows? And so 
oftentimes you don't get a black and white answer, but I think you can get to some really interesting nuance. And what I was hearing back from everybody was, we think it's happenstance. We think it's opportunistic. Both the groups that go after people and the groups that use initial access brokers will break in and sell you that access. They said, you know, we think they do categorize who they've hit, sometimes incorrectly, but looking at the size, the industry, and they, they price it accordingly if they're selling it to others. But I just thought that was an interesting perspective that I was able to get. How are these targets getting selected? And so I turned it around from this sector's getting hit to all sectors are getting hit and it's pretty random. Is that earth shattering? I don't know. But I think it's an interesting, again, it's an interesting nuance to bring here. And we need to be careful when somebody puts out a report saying this sector is getting hit to say, is it because it's being targeted or because everybody's getting hit? And in this case, it's just because everyone's getting hit. That is such a lackluster answer to say that it's just happenstance. Everything has a pattern. So if we may, you know, have to go through hoops of correlation to find them and perhaps, you know, filter through several biases, but there is a pattern. Everything has a pattern. So that just to say that groups at random have chosen organizations at random within a sector is a hard belief. Did you ever challenge something like that? (laughs) (laughs) Let me provide a longer answer. I mean, I am oversimplifying that, to be sure. I mean, I was talking before about how healthcare seems to be getting hit. I mean, you do see certain sectors getting hit more often. So why is that? Is it because, like I said, I'm just picking on healthcare here, but I refer to any sector. Is it because healthcare tends to be popular with attackers because they think it's going to pay? So if you have a big phishing net and you get back, say, 10 accesses into an organization and you think, which one am I going to start with? Are you going to start with the mom and pop shop or are you going to start with the healthcare conglomerate? Okay, probably healthcare because it's healthcare and also because it's big. So definitely there are patterns in that data. Mm. But I also don't want to overcook the degree to which attackers might be putting on their, I hate healthcare, I'm going after healthcare. I think think we need to step back and say, look, everybody's at risk. The same defenses that protect against ransomware, protect against nation state attackers, any kind of cyber crime, let's not fetishize ransomware. It's just Mm -hmm. the latest and greatest for a lot of attackers. It's a good moneymaker. That's why they're earning it. In another year or two or five, it could be something else. So I want to get, you know, it's important to highlight that distinction as well. A couple of other nuances. I think that we don't know the attacks that aren't coming to light. And so this is something else I really would like to touch on because as a journalist covering ransomware, I often see statistics about the number of attacks has gone up or the number of attacks has gone down. And I've been covering this space for a while and so I have a pretty good idea of why they might be saying that. And sure enough, when you look into it, it's not because, like I was joking before, they've embedded somebody in what was Conti or what is now Lockbit, and they're getting the real data. It's because people are looking at the data leak sites that most, but not all, ransomware groups will run, which will list some, but not all, of the victims who didn't pay. So there's a whole bunch of caveats that you need to take when you're talking about the data that you're using. And again, this is where threat intelligence firms are really useful because they help turn up organizations that have fallen victim. And I'm often not interested in the individual ones, but the big picture, like we were talking about, have there been more healthcare victims recently? And why might that be? Are they gravitating toward smaller companies, which we saw a year ago or so 
in the wake of the big disastrous hits on places like Colonial Pipeline, researchers said that after that, a lot of the groups started to stay away from the really big groups, really big victims, because they were afraid it would draw unwanted scrutiny from law enforcement or intelligence. But now, apparently, we're seeing the average size of victims go back up again because fewer people are paying a ransom and they're getting a little more desperate. So they're resorting to tactics they may have previously avoided. So we've definitely got these trends here. But one of the things I think we have to be really careful about is looking at the number of attacks that are appearing on data leak sites. Because again, ransomware groups tend to lie. They sometimes claim victims they didn't have. And they don't list a decent percentage of groups that fall victim, either because they've paid or for reasons we don't know. Maybe it's not worth their time, they don't think, or their effort. So it's very, very, very difficult to say with any certainty, based on the data leak sites, if we think that the number of victims has gone up or gone down in any given period. Yeah, lacking transparency. So we're, we're just held to what we see. For those- We're or- working with what we've got. And I think it's important yeah. to work with that. But I do caution that if you're doing that, it's really important, speaking as a journalist, to communicate to readers, look, these are the assumptions we've made, and here's why we've made them. And we want you to be fully in the loop about this. And yeah, okay, we're comparing apples to apples, but it might not really be an apple. So take it with a grain of salt. I'm mixing so many metaphors, sorry. Wonderful disclaimer to put out there. Imagine if a lot more vendors did that too. (laughs) We're saying what we do, but also. (laughs) I mean, speaking as a journalist again, If you look back 20 years, you saw the same thing, and you still do, with malware reports. Different vendors would put out reports saying, we've seen this kind of malware go up, this kind of malware go down. Back in the day, it was banking trojans. And when you dig into that, what they mean by that, because every security firm's release or report about that would be different. Every month, every quarter, it would be different. And you'd think, how do I reconcile this? And it turns out that all of the research is based if they're an endpoint security company, on where their endpoints are, who's running their software, because that's where they pull their data. If they've got honeypots, where are the honeypots? If they're tied into a national incident response group, a C-cert, maybe they're getting information from them. So again, it's okay, you can explain it, but I do think there's value in explaining it. If you're an AV vendor based in Russia, you're seeing a lot of what's going on in Russia. That could be very interesting. If you're largely based in the States, same again, but with a stateside perspective. Just helps to note that. Yeah. As we get there, hopefully to that transparency, I guess it's up to the scrutiny of the researcher to understand within what context they're researching and reading something. Back to this relationship between journalists and all security practitioners, are there any points of friction ever or is it usually very collaborative? That's a great question. I don't know if it's an interpersonal kind of answer, but I try not to anger or displease the experts I work with. (laughs) So, because you want to foster cordial relationships. And as a journalist, your reputation is essential. I suppose people have rebuilt it. I wouldn't want to have to try. So when I go to researchers, it's often because either they've put out some interesting new research or I've got a question to get answered. So It tends not to become adversarial. I don't always agree with the findings. And I don't mean that in a, based on my data set, I don't think it's turned out that way. But just because someone puts out research doesn't mean you're going to cover it. Doesn't necessarily strike a chord with you. There are definitely places I go back to and people, contacts I've cultivated over the years who they tend to ping me if they have something interesting or they know that I'll think it's interesting. And so it's lovely to foster those kinds of relationships because as with so many people, 
if you can find what they're really passionate about, it seems to unlock something. And I love finding that with researchers, knowing what it is they're really fascinated by. And then whenever possible, following that up, doing interviews with them or research, diving in with big feature stories, just to explore what it is that they're looking at. Because I think when you cover this enough, you get a nose for things and you start exploring things because you just, you think there's something interesting there. And so I love to encourage that and of course, make use of it when researchers are doing it. I'm glad that you're doing that for others. What's grabbing your attention though now? What are people sending you that they believe you'll be interested in and that's unlocked something for you today? Well, I mean, we've been talking about ransomware and everything I have said is thanks to a number of firms out there, be they threat intelligence or security firms or incident response firms sharing with me directly or via the research they're putting out what it is they've been seeing. And another reason I love covering cybersecurity as a journalist is it always changes. It has never, ever, ever been boring. Every day you wake up and you think, I mean, you know, again, not to be a doom monger, but who's been breached today? What random thing has happened involving a ransomware group in some unexpected way? What are the repercussions? What's the underlying technical explainer? What's the societal impact? So many different interesting angles. But to your question, ransomware has been just so fascinating on so many levels. We've been talking about the technology, but there's also the geopolitical dimension, which has stalled a bit since Russia doubled down on its invasion of Ukraine. Hopes for diplomacy there have failed. But we've been seeing really great strides in business resiliency. Organizations having really robust backups So if they get hit by ransomware, they don't have to even think about paying. And that's where you want to be. That's how you get out of that psychological loop that we were talking about before that you don't want to be in. If they're saying, hey, pay me now, and you say, hey, I'll restore, that just, boom, conversation over. Isn't that lovely? So that's another great thing. Wonderful also what we're seeing at a governmental level in terms of governments coming together to combat ransomware. No easy fix here. No rapid fix. Otherwise, we would have fixed it already but there's hopeful progress being made there as well. So I'm just highlighting ransomware because it brings together so many interesting things. It's not the number one attack we see, but it's so disruptive and really obviously needs to be eradicated. Yeah, closest idea we get to loss for people to come together to change this trend. You are one of the few people I've spoken to that are hopeful about collaboration on a larger scale. Why are you hopeful? What has set the tone? I suppose I'm just an optimist by nature. That's probably giving myself too much of an out. There are a lot of very smart people working on this now. And if you look at the level of cybersecurity discussions happening across society, but especially in the government, here the National Cybersecurity Center has really gotten out in front of the problem and they are really actively working to fix things. We see that in the States as well. There was a report that came out recently from Coveware, Ransomware Incident Response Firm that puts out great research. And one of the things that I really responded to in it was they say they've seen the FBI, with which they work closely, on site a lot more when organizations get hit by ransomware. And I went looking into this a bit because I missed it. And a year ago, there's testimony from the FBI's head of cyber saying, we can have a cyber expert on site anywhere in the US, typically in an hour. After wow. they found us, they've been breached. Wow. And they have retooled to do that. They have this, they're doing all the things they usually do, but there's been this massive shift where they're attempting to help victims. 
not to tell them what to do, because that's up to the victim. If they choose to pay a ransom, that is a business decision. The FBI is clear. Here in Britain, the National Crime Agency is clear. That is a victim's decision, as long as paying them is not prohibited by sanctions. But apparently, having the FBI on site has been really useful for, I think, especially telling the board and the CEO, look, here are your options. Maybe don't pay that ransom if you've got working backups, because we see a lot of organizations do this, and a week later they go, oh, we could have saved that five million or whatever. So I don't know why, but there's progress here. And not just throwing darts at the board, but actually seeing what needs to change and putting resources toward that, not just at a high level, but boots on the ground. So that sort of stuff gives me hope. We're feeling our way somewhat blindly toward a solution, but I do think we're getting there. It's just nobody can see how to get there or it's baby steps as we go along the way. But I feel like there's progress. Yeah. That is immense progress. What a quick reaction and resolution measure for a government to take, at least the United States. Do you see the same thing happening in Scotland? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a wonderful organization here, which is part funded by the Scottish government called the Scottish Business Resiliency Center, the SBRC. We were talking cyber resilience, business resilience, and the slightly bigger picture. And Mm -hmm. they deal with cybersecurity stuff all the time. They've got close ties to police Scotland. Scotland has a devolved police force, so it handles its own policing, has its own, again, business resiliency function, and they tie into other aspects of the government. I think that's been a game changer because the resiliency discussion, again, is how do you prepare for when you get hit despite your best preparations? Organizations like Maersk, for example, that got hit by NotPetya, Maersk had a world-class IT function, excellent security. It still fell victim. Anybody can fall victim. I think what counts is trying not to fall victim and knowing what to happen when you do fall victim. So SBRC has been helping organizations in Scotland practice their incident response. Think about developing tabletop exercises. The National Cybersecurity Center here in Britain, which leads on the incident response front, including for Scotland, it's across the United Kingdom. The NCSC has created an exercise in a box, which is meant to get the organization talking across functions, not just security and IT, but marketing, legal, the CEO, the CEO's office. If something happens, how do we respond? One of the age-old examples is, do we have everyone's contact information printed out because our active directory, they got into it and they've encrypted everything and our phones don't work anymore, but we need to call people and coordinate somehow. Thinking all this stuff through, and I also hear from firms that do this, that over the last couple of years, business resiliency plans have gotten much, much better. And again, this is a way that we blunt attackers from being able to cash in on their attacks by having these kinds of plans in place. So yeah, here in Scotland, uh, we've been very lucky. SBRC has been a model for other parts of the UK. I know that they're spinning up multiple functions like it in England, for example, and using it as a model. Helpful. Very. If this is the general trend, then I believe things can change. Do I believe at all that cybercrime will ever fall to a dead halt? No, in the same way that that, that crime does not. On that point, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Let's go a year to five years from now. I'll give you that time frame. In that time frame, how do you see the cybercrime coverage by journalists evolving 
And then maybe, hey, if you can stretch it, what do you think the outlook of cybercrime is within that time? So I can only speak for myself as a journalist, Mm -hmm. but again, I hope that there's this rigor being brought to things. One of my pet peeves is the word cyber attack, not to get too inside baseball, but the AP style guide that a lot of us use as journalists says that you should reserve cyber attack for only the greatest of attacks. I don't mean greatest like Keanu, like coolest type thing. You know, the ones with most impact, the things that are huge. You're not Petya type stuff. The colonial pipeline example where it got hit by Revil. Even though Revil didn't hit the operational systems, colonial pipeline shut those down itself because it couldn't build people, but the impact was huge. So setting aside whether or not you use that word, too often these days, still, there's an outage and someone says, is it a cyber attack? Or someone has failed to put a password on a database and they claim that it was a cyber attack. And I think it's used to diminish responsibility by a number of victims inappropriately. I don't use their language when I'm reporting on it. So I would hope that there would just be a little more rigor about this and puncturing, again, this discourse, which is so often featuring marketing. Anytime you see a data breach or cyber attack, there I said it, notification, someone says, attackers are so sophisticated these days, everyone's falling victim. Oh, by the way, we've fallen victim. And I just think, oh, you can do better than that. So I hope that people do better than that when they're reporting on things as we progress. Obviously, there's new people always coming into the field. It's that age-old problem. Security has it too. People need to learn the ropes. Hopefully, we'll get there. And then just in terms of what I think might be happening, unfortunately, I do think we'll still be talking ransomware because as you noted, cybercrime, crime, it's never going to go away. And operating online gives you so many benefits. If you're a criminal, you can do it from Russia, which is a safe haven for pretty much everybody always when it comes to cybercrime, as long as you don't attack anyone in or around Russia. Why are they going to stop? They're not. And I don't know, how are we going to blunt ransomware? Uh, Helping victims respond more quickly is a great thing, but that doesn't fix the underlying problem, of course. Yeah, it's to induce a sense of loss on the attacker. And if the attacker (laughs) not... I know, crippling ennui. Yes. Oh, have you thought about your life choices? Wouldn't you rather be a swimming instructor? Oh, just think you could be outside instead of in front of that screen. I mean, psychological operations, great. But until they can bring millions of dollars of profit to bear, I don't know what we're going to do. Rethink deterrence. That's what right, exactly. <laughs> Not just technical deterrence, but more psychological deterrence embedded within the communities we see crawling to cybercrime out of need. You know, it's so funny, just as an aside, that humans are so predictable in so many ways, but yet we largely ignore the patterns because something is novel about the approach. Cybercrime actors, threat actors, anyone who goes to crime is either in need of profit, livelihood, or survival, however they want to define that, or there is the thrill of doing something bad. Then people add all the other psychological effects that this person might be going through to go to a life like that, perhaps the thrill or a chemical imbalance, whatever. But all of that can be categorized. And then there are certain uh, interviews, I think. I saw this one podcast, I believe it was on Lex Friedman's podcast, of someone who was embedded deep into this world and discusses how one thing leads to another. And slowly you realize that quick cash is possible and attribution can go away. Why wouldn't somebody 
uh, it would be very nice to see our cybersecurity world take a more keen eye on behavioral impetus, psychological impetus on the attacker. Do you study that? Do you focus on that at all? I, as a journalist, have touched on it before. And I think what you said about perpetual novelty when it comes to cybercrime is real. I think that's a great way to put it because there is this perpetual novelty. There's this image of the hackers in the hoodies wielding like wizards, this magical ability to take over your computer remotely. And I think a lot of the coverage or thinking about it doesn't often push past that. Hollywood tropes, et cetera, you see that all the time. But what you talked about in terms of behavior, there's been some really fascinating research done in recent years on the link between cybercrime and just criminality in general. And one of the big takeaways has been that offenders tend to be male. They tend to be, I'm going to get my statistics wrong, but let's say late teens, early 20s. They tend not to have a lot of ties, maybe not a steady job. And that's just criminality. But it turns out to apply really well to cybercrime as well. And you can talk about possibly certain people being on the spectrum, being a little more drawn to it or not drawn to it. There's some debate about it, but definitely we've seen some evidence of that. People who don't mind sitting in front of their keyboards all day doing highly repetitive tasks. Wouldn't it be great to get them into a job where they could do that without putting people's livelihoods at risk? But isn't that crime in general? So you have different people coming to it for different reasons. But I think to your question, you know, behaviorally, we do see certain patterns. And that's why you've seen programs again here in Britain, for example, aimed at deterring teenagers from getting into cybercrime, trying to nudge them into better pursuits, like working for intelligence agencies, trying to dangle that instead. Because if you get into the crime part, you're not going to do the intel agency part. So again, with the levers there, trying to keep people from offending in the first place. Then that research, I hope, starts to become something pervasive across all the blogs and the white papers, ebooks that even vendors are putting out. The holders and upholders of security defense and research also, I think, hopefully, actually rather hopefully, will find the responsibility there to focus on the behavioral and mental aspects of crime, the ones that they try to deter so well. All right. Now, with that being said, let's talk about this last closing point, and that would be advice you have for future journalists. You gave us one incredible piece of advice already. Let's all come down to the same syntax, same verbiage, and same terminology to discuss what really is what occurred so that responsibility is attributed well across the board and that we get closer to a truth that isn't clouded. Now, that's, I think, already one of your three. However, if you'd like to give three more, I am open to it. No pressure. Wow. (laughs) Definitely, I'll pick that one up. And I'll just, you see so many communications that get issued. And I don't mean to link victims with ransomware groups, but both of them have a propensity to say things in a way that doesn't make themselves look bad. And of course, of course, you're going to do that. But I think it's so helpful to step back sometimes and just look at the facts, just the facts. Lay it out, what happened. There's a huge impact, obviously, if you're a victim, because no matter what you say, I guess oftentimes you're going to be seen to have failed, even if it wasn't your fault. That's an unfortunate reality these days. But trying to be neutral, again, trying to look at the facts of the situation, 
is one of the main things I would recommend, not repeating the language that's being used, but trying to, I guess this gets also to being a technology journalist in general. That is typically something that you do. You try to make things accessible to a large audience that might be highly technical, highly specialized. And you tend to follow your nose as well. What don't I know about this that I'm asking myself? Or what do I find interesting about this? And I can't explain it. Who do I go to to explain it to me so that I can explain it to others? That seems to me like journalism 101, but I think those skills are always going to remain in demand, especially for cybersecurity. What is cybersecurity? I guess it's actually, we're talking about lots of different things in here, aren't we? Regulation, for example, surveillance is something we hadn't really covered, but that's huge. Always a fascinating one. You've got the government approaches to things as you'd said, the judicial response, all sorts of different angles here. And it can get very technical. And I think our duty as journalists is to demystify, not build it up. Also, never, ever, ever use a hacker in a hoodie to illustrate a story and vigorously pursue those that do, because it doesn't, I think, go any way toward explaining what it's actually about. So it's a slightly tongue-in-cheek way to end, I suppose, but I think it encapsulates the problem and it's also a problem we'll probably never get rid of because everyone loves the, the Keanu Matrix green zeros and ones, but they always know what you're talking about if you use that, but it doesn't actually really describe the industry anyway. Perfect way to end it. Yes. <laughs> to all of that, yes. And I hope to never see another image like that from anyone who listens in on to this. And I hope many do. Thank you, Matthew, for joining us today invaluable advice, insights, and I really look forward to keeping up with your work. Now I know where to keep up with your work. Where can all of our listeners keep up with you? Thank you very much. So databreachtoday, all one word, dot com is the website where you can track me down. I'm also Euro InfoSec. So Euro like the currency, InfoSec, all one word on Twitter and also on Mastodon. So please give me a follow. And if you've got any questions, fire them my way. Yes, the engagement, the engagement. Likewise to all of the listeners, as you listen in on to this and you have some questions, write them down as you go and pitch them to us. We love to stay engaged. We love to collaborate and communicate across the entire security. As a community writ large, you can be anyone listening, actually. If you have a question, let us know. And we're always happy to have you on here as well. Thank you. Thanks again, Matthew. Thank you to all Thank of you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm glad. Take care, all. Take care, man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks. And we'll catch you on the next episode. 